Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Godzilla time on the podcast, but maybe a Godzilla you're a little bit less familiar with, one that was new to me as of this week. Today we are doing the Godzilla picture that was too hot for Toho, the Godzilla film that is too radical, it's too dangerous, it must be stopped, it's Godzilla vs. Hedera. Yes, Godzilla vs. Hedera, one I had never seen before, and... I think, you know, I've seen a fair number of Godzilla films over time and I think I tend to have I tend to have watched the ones that were either on TBS back in the day they would show them in like the the afternoon when I was a kid or mm. ones that were featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000 later on. But there there of course have been tons of Godzilla films over the years and this is one that simply fell through the cracks for me. I did not I did not know it existed until this week when you said, "Hey, why don't we do a kaiju movie? Why don't we do either this one or that one?" And I looked and I saw, well, it looks like Godzilla vs. Hedera is available on HBO Max as part uh-huh. of the, the Turner Classic Films uh, selection there. Well, let's do that one. It's the easiest one for me to, to see. And I'm so glad I did. The other option we were looking at, uh, it's funny because the two movies have a kind of similar premise. The other one we were looking at was The Space Amoeba, which does not have Godzilla in it. It's a kaiju movie about an alien microbe that lands on an island in the South Pacific, and there it transforms uh, some examples of local wildlife into giant monsters. I think it makes a big squid and a big crab and one other thing I don't recall. Um, But in this movie, we also have an alien microbe, I think coming from a gaseous nebula, or as speculated by one character later on, from a planet covered in sludge, a sludge-like planet. Dark, sludgy planet. Mm -hmm. Dark, sludgy planet uh, that has come to Earth, and whereas many aliens would say, take me to your leader this one says take me to your smokestacks i need to get high take me to your pollution yes and then yeah. one character even says well isn't this good it can eat up all our pollution and like no it's just too destructive that's right <laughs> yeah so this is a pollution monster that huffs airborne particulates straight out of smokestacks he is a brimstone beast from space that exudes sulfurous gas and acid and poison and uh and and is bad news all around yeah, so one thing about this film is this first of all, this film is very much a kaiju versus film. So it yeah. is going to largely hit the same plot points you're familiar with. Some new creature presents a threat to humanity, uh, an established veteran, in this case Godzilla, shows up to battle it. Human characters watch on as battle proceeds. Um, you know, the, your, your good guy monster is going to be on the ropes for a little bit, but is going to have a big comeback and eventually win the day. So Godzilla versus Hedera is going to give you all of those points. But there's so much additional weirdness here. There's so much visual flair in this film. I feel like it really stands apart from pretty much all the other kaiju films that I've seen. I'm actually, I, I, I seriously entertained putting it above Shin Godzilla as my favorite Godzilla movie. I was thinking about the same thing. This is a new favorite for me, definitely my top three now. Um, and much like you, I also have Shin Godzilla near the top of the heap. Uh, but mainly, it's the reason I was so enthralled by this movie was its novelty. Having seen mm-hmm. many kaiju movies, it has a lot of the familiar elements. And in fact, I would say the familiar elements are actually the weakest part of this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as the, the big monster meat slam goes, I mean, there is a you know extended 30-minute beatdown at the end of the movie that is 
okay. It's not one of the best, uh, but it's also not one of the worst. But it is the other elements of this movie that really make it an absolute standout, without a doubt, the most bizarre Godzilla movie I've ever seen, uh, in that this movie believes it is art. Yes, Absolutely. No, no, yeah, no question about this. It thinks it's art and it's making a statement and maybe it's going to change the world. Yeah, it's it's probably the best example of an avant-garde Godzilla film. And that's one of the reasons why it's so watchable. Uh, it's also one of the reasons that uh, that, that its director was criticized uh, back in the day and indeed never directed another Godzilla film. You'll see his, his directorial credit on IMDb for some other Godzilla films, but that's because they, they utilized uh, footage from previous films in those, uh, those pictures. That's right. So the director was Yoshimitsu Bano and... Uh and you will frequently see references to this as the movie that ended his Godzilla career. You know, he could have gone on to do all kinds of Godzilla stuff. But like I said at the beginning, this was just too hot for Toho. It was too weird. It was too radical. It was rocking the boat. You can't make movies like this, man. Yeah, exactly. There are a lot of stories about how uh, producer uh, Tomoyuki Tanaka responded uh, to this. There's at least one story in which he he said, uh, "You've ruined Godzilla," uh, and there was a lot of <laughs> anger. And I was reading. There's a lot of. There's a great uh, blog post about this from Patrick Galvin at TohoKingdom.com. Uh, you mm-hmm. can look it up. It, he has a uh, Yoshimitsu Bano in memoriam post that goes through a lot of this and talks about his his achievements, his uh, you know what he gave the Godzilla. Uh, franchise but then also how it was received at the time uh so yeah this this is a movie that was maybe ahead of its time and i think stands the test of time because it is doing things differently so what is it doing differently Uh, i could list a number of things one thing i will say is the uh aesthetic differences it's much more free form than any other godzilla movie i've ever seen in that it uh, it inserts things that are outside the normal stream of plot development. So it has mm-hmm. musical numbers. It has animated segments. They're, uh, they're short, but there are several of them throughout the movie. And they were some of my favorite parts because they're beautiful animation. It, it's almost like a, a Godzilla movie with elements of uh, like the Yellow Submarine movie and, uh, and other sort of late 60s psychedelic films that involved a lot of uh, uh, exciting visuals with abstract colors and dancing in a club. Yeah. And also, yeah, the, 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 there's also a huge cultural element to this as well. Uh, there's a, there's a, a sense of the youth movement and the youth culture mm-hmm. and, and, the, and, 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 their rise and their importance and, and their part in the fight. Generally in a kaiju movie, who do you see fighting the kaiju? Who's raising arms against the kaiju? It is the military, right? It's the authorities. Or, yeah. Yeah. And in this, we see the authorities yeah, playing a part, but also, failing in ways and it's it's the youth who are who are leading the charge at one point yes in this movie ultimately i think the authorities are portrayed as almost entirely incompetent that like mm-hmm. they are not the ones preserving order ultimately it's godzilla who's the one who is preserving order and godzilla um I was trying to think about what Godzilla represents in this movie because i think you can make a case that a lot of the godzilla films have a um I mean, you know, it's it's hard to say they have a very clear message, but to the extent that there is a message in them, it's a kind of vague environmental one. Uh, mm-hmm. It's, you know, that we have done things to the earth and in doing things to the earth through maybe weapons testing or, or industry, we have upset the natural order and we have unleashed forces that are beyond our control. Mm-hmm. But like I said, uh, 
I, I think that that critique is in most Godzilla movies very buried under the surface, very vague. In this movie, it's the opposite. It's not only overt; it's extremely overt. They are screaming in your face with an environmental message. Yeah, yeah, they, they definitely lean into the idea that Godzilla is is not only it's not just a big monster for kids, though they acknowledge that. But he is also something of an embodiment of the nation's of the, or a culture's will, you know, yeah. like like Godzilla represents, uh, in a sense, humanity's struggle against pollution, against destructive elements of, of the world. And the question of can Godzilla defeat this enemy is ultimately a question of whether we can, whether we have the public will to confront it. That's another transition. I would say originally Godzilla is sort of the manifestation of uh, of us having unleashed forces beyond our control by our upsetting of the natural order. In this movie, he is the thing that fights back against the monster created by industrial pollution. Yeah. Now I have a question. I, I don't know if you know the answer to this. Uh, one of the fun things we see with the Godzilla arc is that in the very first Toho Godzilla movie – Godzilla is the antagonist of the film. Like, mm-hmm. you know, this is a dangerous, scary, dark monster that, uh, that that brings great destruction. But by the later films, Godzilla is often sort of the hero of the film, is portrayed as a, a force who is inherently dangerous, but which ultimately fights against a force that is even more threatening or, uh, or even more malevolent. And that's the case in this movie. So I wonder, like, how exactly does that arc develop? And is that the case for other movies? Like, I, I've watched some of the Gamera movies where, you know, mm-hmm. Gamera is doing the same thing Godzilla is doing in the, in the later movies. G- Gamera is good, and he's fighting against the bad monsters. Was that always the case with Gamera, or did Gamera start as bad like Godzilla did? If memory serves, Gamera followed the exact same track. Gamera in the first film is a threat that has to be overcome and launched into space. I think ultimately, and this would be this would be for a, a, a more in depth discussion later, perhaps drawing on the work of people who've maybe thought longer and harder about this than we have. But I, I imagine there is there are a lot of comparisons to be made with the way deities change over time. Mm. Uh, You know, we can, I don't know if it would be the exact same trajectory or would be kind of an inverse trajectory in some cases, but uh, it, I wonder how, you know, in a loose sense anyway, Godzilla is a deity. He exists not in the, 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 the mythic realm of, um, you know, of say like the ancient world or even modern religion, but he's in the, the film myth world and, and is therefore, not quite the same as uh, our traditional ideas of deity, but perhaps subject to some of the same changes in the way we perceive him. Well, maybe before we go on any further, we should hit some uh, trailer audio. All right, let's have it. This, I believe, is from the, the English trailer for Godzilla vs. Hedera. Out of the polluted waters it came to become the most fearful menace that ever threatened mankind. <laughs> Feeding, growing ever more deadly on smog. Only one force dared stand up to its overpowering evil. Godzilla! Nothing man can do can stop the smog monster. Can Godzilla save the Earth from this mastodon of destruction? All right, sounds good to me. Uh, and uh, and we, we should, of course, note that in the U.S., this, I think, was originally released as Godzilla versus the Smog Monster. 
Yeah, that's right, though. From what I understand in the movie, the monster is not made of smog. The monster is made mostly of waterborne pollutants and then comes out onto land to huff the smog. Yeah, he's made out of like sludge and minerals and all. Yeah. Um, oh, quick, quick bit of trivia. Uh, in Germany, this film was released as Frankenstein's Battle Against the Devil's Monster. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Um, I was, this was new to me, but apparently, uh, in the German release of Godzilla films, it was often explained that Dr. Victor Frankenstein created the monsters that Godzilla fights. Uh, and it just had to do with, um, <laughs> with how they were releasing them at the time. So you had multiple Toho films. Toho did some Frankenstein films about drinking giant Frankensteins. And, uh, and I checked, it's okay if I call them Frankensteins. I checked with the uh, Frankenstein's monster on this. Uh, but, uh, but this sort of set the precedent for how you would release a big monster movie in, in Germany. Yeah, I remember reading uh, a few weeks ago about a movie I'd never heard of before that is a fr- it is directly a Frankenstein kaiju mm-hmm. movie, not just uh, called Frankenstein. It's like about, now that I'm about to say this, this really sounds wrong, but I think what it is is a Nazi scientist takes Frankenstein's brain to mm-hmm. Japan for study and there it gets uh it it somehow gets turned into a giant monster. Yep, I believe that's right. Okay. Strange. Uh, yeah. All right. Maybe we'll come back to it. Uh, we're talking about doing some Frankenstein films eventually. All right, I guess we should come back to talk about the director of Godzilla versus Hedera, who was again uh Yoshimitsu Bano. Yes, um, director, also co-writer. He lived 1931 through 2017. This was his first and only Godzilla movie. Um, again, you'll see him credited on the Gigan and the Megalon movies, but that's just because they utilize older footage. He'd previously served as assistant director and second assistant director on some really notable Akira Kurosawa pictures, including Throne of Blood in 1957. That's that wonderful Samurai Macbeth movie. And also The Hidden Fortress in 1958, which I think is is often cited as one of um, George Lucas's influences in um, uh, the creation of the original Star Wars picture. Both great films. Yes. I've also read that Bano was, was very much a part of the Toho film system. So he came up in Toho and he studied under several notable Toho directors. I believe his grip on this film is strong because uh, unlike some other kaiju films, this is one in which I detect not just a Toho house style, but I feel a really strong, bold, individual director's vision guiding the whole thing. Yes, absolutely. And I think it's why, at the time, there seems to have been tension with producer uh, Tanaka over this. Mm -hmm. Um, It it seems like he... He fell out of good graces with Toho and ultimately went on to be more of a producer. He was, e- uh, but was EP on the 2014 American Godzilla movie. And I believe he's credited, even though these occurred after his death, I think he's credited on Godzilla King of the Monsters from uh, 2019 and 2021's Godzilla versus Kong. But yeah, I think this is the reason why he was controversial at the time, but is memorable today. Uh, you know, there have been so many Godzilla films. How many of them are really worth looking up and seeing if you're not a completist, I would say this is one that's worth going back and seeing. Yeah, totally. Uh, And it's different than a lot of the other best ones, because I would say a lot of the other best Godzilla movies, apart from the first one, the first one is very uh, dark and gloomy. A lot of the other best ones are very bright and lively and sort of uh, fast moving and fun. This one is also overall dark and gloomy, but it's excellently dark and gloomy. Yeah, yeah. 
All right, so there was another writer on this, uh, Takeshi Kimura, who lived 1912 through 1988, a studio writer for Toho. He was involved in more than 30 films, including some really notable uh, ones, including Rodan, The Mysterians. Oh, he was, uh, he was the writer of Matango. Allegedly, he believed this was his finest work. It is a fine work. We may have to come back to Matango. This is about an island where where a, a, a fungal infection turns humans into um, myconid uh, uh, mutations. It's it's pretty fabulous. So yes, Matango is worth checking out. Uh, Kimura also worked on Frankenstein versus Baragon. This was a giant Frankenstein movie from from Toho. The War of the Gargantuans, King Kong Escapes, uh, Destroy All Monsters, and uh, and of course this wonderful Godzilla film. Takeshi Kimura is interesting because I was finding a lot of very tantalizing biographical details about him online, but not in very solid looking sources that, and I mm-hmm. couldn't find them backed up anywhere that looked more solid. So, so frustratingly, I, I can't report a lot about him with confidence, but if, for example, some of the like user uh, submitted biographies I found of him on various sites have any truth to them, uh, he, he was a strange and interesting figure. He was allegedly known for writing Toho monster movies with a more gloomy outlook and, and serious political themes as opposed to the, the happy-go-lucky beatdowns of other, you know, repeat kaiju screenwriters. Mm. Well, as we turn to the cast here, let's go right to the beatdown. We're going to talk about the human characters played by human actors, but let's start with the monsters. Oh, yeah. So here's something about this movie. Despite the fact that it has a much darker tone, the Godzilla in this movie is kind of sassy. I really detect a sense of humor in Godzilla's uh, gestures and expressions in this film. There's even a really funny moment later on where the military is trying to do something to defeat the uh, the opposing monster and fails. And Godzilla does almost kind of a shrug like, oh boy, do I have to do everything myself? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, there is a little bit of sass. He's a he's a bit of a showboat at times. I mean, he's on the ropes a lot in this. Yes, uh, but he but he does he shows a, he's a little bit of a showboat in a few scenes, and he also takes some really inventive bumps. Like he'll get shot with a laser and do a complete front flip. So mm-hmm. there are times like that where I was really admiring the performance. And indeed, the the performer here is Haruo Nakajima, who lived nineteen twenty nine through twenty seventeen. He is uh, is kind of an all star of the of the Godzilla franchise. He played Godzilla in twelve consecutive films. He was also in Mothra and the War of the Gargantuas, uh, as as all as well as uh, Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai. Uh, most people forget that in the original cut of that, the Seven Samurai battled a giant monster. No, not not really. Uh, but he he played a non monster in that. But uh, generally, he's considered a legend uh, of the rubber monster suit. The rubber suit actor par excellence i haven't seen mothra in a long time but i remember that one is is known for being one of the best of the meat slams it's like a, <laughs> a really great monster throwdown now the enemy in this hetera is played by uh kimpachiro satsuma who was born in 1947 and as of this recording is is still alive um, and while he plays Godzilla's enemy in this picture, Satsuma would go on to play the King of Monsters himself after Nakajima retired. So uh, Satsuma served as Godzilla um, from 1984 through 1995. Seeing those dates, though, did make me uh, a little bit uh, sag with sadness as I imagine the transition from Godzilla and, and his monster enemies being a person in a suit to being a CGI creation. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you gotta love love the suit, and, and you know, there, there. I think there've been whole documentaries about about what was required uh, of these gentlemen because 
th- these were very physical performances. They they involve suits that were often not very well ventilated, and you're you know, you're, you're sweating profusely inside them. And uh, as as we mentioned, like with Godzilla, there's a certain it's not just a, a stammer around and smash a building. There's a certain physicality to the performance that really shines through. Uh, you have to betray more than just uh, brute lizard strength or anything like that. There is a character there uh, that the actor is portraying. All right, well, let's get into the human characters now. Most most of these characters are going to be members of the Yano family, the Yano family being the, the key family of humans. And um, let's start with the, the child, the boy. Uh, this is um, uh, Hiroyuki Kawasi playing Ken Yano. And he was this actor was born in 1964. Child actor uh, was also uh, I, th- I think he showed up in 1973's Godzilla versus Megalon as well. And he he wasn't in much, but he was in a TV series called Saru Saru Nu Gundam, which I believe is Army of the Apes. Uh, mm. If you translate it, uh, this was eventually cut and released as a film in the U.S. by Sandy Frank as Time of the Apes. Oh, Mystery I know Science that one. Theater 3000 <laughs> viewers will be familiar with this film, um, which is a lot of fun. But I've I've I have never had the chance to watch the original TV series, but there's a lot of it, and it has huge fans in Japan. Uh, people still follow it, and it seems like there's a lot more. Like what you see in Time of the Apes is very much a compressed. Uh, plot line. Uh, there's apparently a lot more going on. There's a robot in it. Uh, I, I would love to know more, and I'd love to hear from anyone who's watched it in full. I don't think it's been really widely available on DVD or Blu-ray or even uh, like you know uh, streaming services outside of Japan. Now, Rob, I have a kaiju question. Maybe you can shed some light on this for me. Okay. In Godzilla versus Hedera, this young boy can has a kind of psychic connection with the monsters. He has apocalyptic visions of the smog creature Hedera, and he has uh and he he sort of has omens about when Godzilla will appear to save the day. So and and this is not the only film where there is some kind of psychic or at least uh emotional bond between the kaiju monster and a young child. It's often true in like the Gamera movies. And mm-hmm. do, do you know uh, is there a reason for this recurring theme? I I don't know. It's it's one of those things that is often uh, with Gamera. It's like Gamera is a friend of children, you know. Right, there yeah. there is this innate connection. I don't think I have personally seen a kaiju film other than this one where it's described as an overt you know, psychic link, a telepathic link between monster and child, like there is some sort of sacred bond there. I feel like it's something, and I could be wrong on this because I'm not a kaiju movie expert or a Godzilla expert uh, or anything, but I feel like this, in this case, uh, our screenwriters said, well, obviously this, this link is here. Let's actually explain what it is a bit, to a certain okay. extent, while still retaining its mystery. Okay, okay. I mean, maybe it, it could just be that you need to have some kind of uh, demonstration of an emotional connection between the monster and the human characters, and maybe it's just natural to assume that only a child has the moral purity to, to have that connection with the big beast. Now, if we do go back to that idea of Godzilla as an actual deity, it mm-hmm. is interesting the use of... Um, in, in this film, I don't know if you noticed uh, some of these details, but first of all, the boy, uh, Ken, he has toy Godzillas, and he has yes. something like a Godzilla shrine set up. And this is kind of lightly juxtaposed with the casual use of of tiny um, amulets 
and uh, and you know visions of I think like the like the Buddha that are arranged around the television sets and other scenes. Yes, yes. So I don't know how much what they're how much they're really trying to say with that, but I feel like if one wants to really chew on the matter, you can definitely start making those connections. I love the fact that Ken is playing with Godzilla dolls in this movie because it's like that scene in Halloween 3 where Tom Atkins is sitting at the bar and he's watching the first Halloween movie on a TV. <laughs> That's pretty good. All right, let's move on to some of these other human characters. Um, so the uh, the matriarch of the Yano family is, um, is Toshi Yano, played by... Um, Toshi Kimura, she acted in such pictures as Sword of the Beast, Revenge, and the Three Outlaw Samurai. And then Akira Yamauchi plays Dr. Toru Yano, the, the patriarch of the family. He lived 1921 through 1993. This seems to be his biggest role, but he, was, he also had a, had a part in Lone Wolf and Cub, Baby Cart in the Land of Demons from 1971. Um, this, this is, of course, a classic of the genre and was also a major inspiration on the Mandalorian TV series. So he plays the the scientist character. Usually yeah. in these movies, you need at least one scientist character who's there to to figure out the nature of of the new threat. And so he's some kind of biologist who has an early uh, encounter with the hetera beast in the water and ends up like a, with a big sulfuric acid burn on his face. And there's a very funny scene later on where he's, you know, he's trying to solve the problem and uh, he, he's lying awake and his wife comes in and says something like she's like, stop thinking about hetera and go to bed. <laughs> yeah, he spends a lot of the, the, the picture kind of bedridden and recovering from his injuries. Yeah. All right. Uh, there uh, we also have a couple of characters who are not members of the Yano family, uh, but are very close with them. Uh, the first of, of all is the character Yukio uh, Kyuchi, played by uh, uh, Toshio Shiba. And this is the character, the, the youth with the really captivating eyes. I think Yukio is supposed to be Toshi's brother, the, the okay. Ken's mother's brother, so Ken, Ken's uncle. Okay, all right. That was that was kind of lost on me, I guess. Uh, but yeah, but, otherwise he's he's just like a young guy who hangs out with the family and then later goes to a psychedelic nightclub. Yeah. Uh, so um, uh, Shiba had a long TV and film career, including the 1971 kaiju movie Mirror Man. Uh, and I, th I think he's still active. He, he was born in 1947. He has amazingly distinctive eyes. He's one of those people who uh, you've probably had this experience before where I saw him and I was like, oh, he looks so familiar. What have I seen him in before? And I looked and I couldn't find anything. So yeah. I, I think maybe I've never seen him in anything before. He just has such a distinctive look that that he, he seemed familiar. Yeah, same. All right. And then we also have um, a character by the name of Miki Fujinomiya, uh, this, uh, play, played by the singer uh, Kiki Omari. This is, I think, her only film role, uh, but she does seem to have had a much uh, richer career as a singer. Um, and it looks like she's still active, at least on Japanese language social media. She seems to have a following as being, I mean, it's kind of like, I guess, cinematically, it's kind of like having been a Bond girl if you were mm. a Godzilla girl. Uh, I think there's actually a documentary about like Godzilla girls and uh, she's featured in it. She has a fabulous musical number in this. There, there are multiple musical numbers in this movie, actually. Yeah, but she has a lot of style. She brings a, a style and hipness to the film uh, uh. That, that certainly stands the test of time. 
And finally, I'm going to mention the composer is uh, Richiro Manabi, who lived 1924 through 2015. He has 114 score credits on IMDb. I'm not, I'm not sure if he's responsible, though, for the opening music. I guess he is. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute, but it has really, really nice opening music, a really nice theme song they keep re- uh, really uh, re- nice. returning to. <laughs> it's really nice. It's just great. <laughs> Uh, I did read that Guy uh, Hemrick did the lyrics for the English version. I have not heard that because the version we watched is the one on um, on HBO Max. It's up there with the TCM collection, mm-hmm. um, and it is it is in the original Japanese with subtitles. But I guess there was an English language version of it, like they dubbed it for release in the states. And Hemrick is the guy who did a lot of lyrics for beach movies back in the day, stuff like Beach Blanket Bingo and Muscle Beach Party. So. I I'm just going to guess here, but I'm I'm guessing that his lyrics did not retain the strong and, and dire, dire environmental message that we find in the the actual uh, Japanese lyrics. Maybe not uh, the beach movies, the bikini movie, the the peak of human artistic achievement. <laughs> All right, well let's let's get into the plot a bit here. All right. Well, one thing this movie really does is it sticks to its themes. It hits you right with them at the outset, and then it does not give up. So. Mm-hmm. You start with, of course, as always, the classic glorious Toho logo. And then very first thing you see, smokestacks, yep. billowing clouds of soot, rushing water slicked with oil and green foam. The message is clear. The earth is disgusting. The earth is just ruined. And then and then you see water. And what's this? What's coming out of the water? Is it a slimy, cancerous garbage bag with red crocodile eyes boiling up to the surface? That's right. You see Hetera poking up out of the water right at the top. Just n- mm-hmm. no waiting at all. Now, you don't see all of him, though. It's no, he's no, peeking no. at you. No, no. Much like a crocodile lo- like looking up over the top of the water, you just see a kind of uh, the pebbled surface of the top of his head mm-hmm. and, and the eyes looking out there. And he has these vertically oriented red eyes that are very, uh, very prominently featured throughout this movie. In fact, I, I know eyes somehow seem to be a theme of the film. Mm. Because remember, his, like his eyes are his power. Godzilla partially defeats him by pulling his eyes out and, and electrocuting them. Yeah. But as soon as you see Hedera... Title card, Godzilla versus Hedera, and then bam, straight to a James Bond-style musical introduction. Amazing. And and when I say James Bond-style, I really mean it, as in there's like a, a glamorous singer doing a theme song for the movie over – uh, over colorful abstract backgrounds, just like in a in a James Bond title sequence. Yeah, this uh, t- this track, by the way, is called Give Back the Sun, exclamation point. Uh, and you can find this on whatever your, your streaming music site of choice happens to be. I'll also try to include this uh, embedded on the blog post for this episode at samudamusic.com. I had one of those moments where I was watching this by myself, but I just wanted to be looking around to find somebody else in the room. Like, are you seeing this? Are you seeing mm-hmm. the same thing I'm seeing? The song is 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 tremendous. I loved it. Yeah, but I mean, because the lyrics are, are so solid and gloomy, and and it's an it's an interesting juxtaposition between the tone of the lyrics and the the the, the style of the song. But then, yeah, we have this. Um, you have this fabulous, uh, you know, splash of color behind her um, as she's singing. You know, this is this Bond sense of um, of of wonder, and it's kind of, I guess, the stuff behind her too, with the kind of like oil lights. It's like the the Joshua Light Show, uh, uh. that stuff you see in a lot of like psychedelic uh, performances. Uh, so it's it, it, we have a strong opening with with psychedelia and. Um, 
and in, in music and fashion, but then also scenes of sludge and pollution. And and I have to say, we in in the movie Frog, when we talked about frogs in a previous episode of Weird House, we talked about the problem of creating fake looking garbage, fake looking pollution. Uh-huh. And I feel like this movie nails its pollution. The the pollution looks real and yet has a surreal quality to it that feels like it is it is art. It's disgusting, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the oh, the lyrics of the song—it's all like the birds and the fish—they are all dead. Uh, it, it's the you know the Goldfinger song, but it's about pollution. And there's mm-hmm. a great part where in the the verse, she's just n- listing off names of chemicals. She's singing mercury, cobalt, cadmium. All life is gone. The fields mm-hmm. and the mountains are silent. Uh, and there's like green bubbles in the background and, uh, and then, and then, uh, when she gets to the line, there's no one left on earth. This also ties back to our discussion from frogs, because what is the single piece of garbage or litter that conveys squalor better than anything else? It is a discarded doll. And what do you see here floating in the oil and the trash? It is a filthy discarded doll, or maybe it's a mannequin, but it's a it's a doll mannequin humanoid shape. Yeah, it's perfect. The, the plastic likeness of the human form uh, discarded in the, the plastic strewn polluted mess, uh, the, the, um, this, this, this patina that uh, encompasses our culture. Oh, and there's a, a grandfather clock floating in the, in yep. the muck. That's pretty great, too. <laughs> so good. So this movie really comes out strong. A lot of kaiju movies are just about like it doesn't even like you just want to skip to the big battle at the end, uh-huh. uh, like the big battle in the destruction and the, the monster uh, beatdown, that's all that matters usually. In this film, everything else is done to such a high level. Uh, I feel like you'd be hard-pressed to find a Godzilla movie or any kaiju movie that is more interesting in its scenes that are not about monsters battling. I totally agree. In fact, it was inverted for me. The only time in this movie that I did start to get a little bored was during the big monster fight toward the end. Mm-hmm. Which which does go on a a bit long, but I'm yeah. not even sure that's a an appropriate criticism for me to make of a giant monster movie. But I do just want to reiterate one more time: you are correct. This movie passes the fake garbage test. It's not like in Frogs, like where you're seeing discarded beer cans that look like somebody just drank them. Yeah. But from here we go straight into the action, and it is what we mentioned before: a young boy playing with Godzilla dolls. Uh, there's actually pretty interesting framing in this scene. As we've said many times, this is a visually interesting movie. It's got a well, uh, you know, it's got a good sense of mise-en-scene uh, to be pretentious about it. Interesting photography, interesting framing. So this boy is playing with Godzilla dolls on an idyllic grassy hillside that overlooks a vast urban landscape that's just covered with smokestacks, like a valley of thorns. Yeah. But he's got this Godzilla shrine and is surrounded by flowers and, and it's beautiful. Uh, and, and here we get to meet the main human characters, the members of the boy's family. The boy, of course, is Ken. And we meet his father, Dr. Toru Yano, who's a marine biologist. Uh, his mother, Toshi. His, uh, his uncle or friend, Yukio. I think his uncle. And, uh, and, and Ken and Yukio are talking at the beginning and Yukio's like, Hey, is Godzilla your favorite? And Ken says, yes, he's a Superman. <laughs> is he a man? I, I don't know. I mean, I guess you could certainly say he is super compared to man. Yeah. 
But anyway, they're hanging around when their unusual fish guy shows up. There's this guy named Mr. Gohei, and as soon as he arrives, they're they're like, oh, hello, have you brought us another unusual fish? So I think it's because the father's a marine biologist that they've got a go-to guy for unusual fish. Yeah, and, and, uh, and, and indeed the father, what he has various um, jars of strange specimens that he's collected lining the wall. Great set. Yeah, and so Mr. Gohei brings in the specimen, which looks like a gigantic tadpole. It's like a fist-sized tadpole. But they conclude that it cannot be a tadpole because Mr. Gohei caught it at the prime spot for shrimp fishing in Suruga Bay. And do tadpoles live in the ocean? Uh, the father says, no, they do not. Hmm. And Mr. Gohei notes, you know, well, Suruga Bay is getting really, really bad. Like, he didn't catch a single shrimp there this time and and it's almost as if the world is sort of is is failing is giving out on them and then meanwhile once again this movie does not make you wait on developing things the family starts watching reports on tv about a giant creature that's breaking up ships in in Suruga Bay like oil tankers are, are coming into the bay and they're crashing into each other and then getting snapped in half almost as if something is wanting to like drink the oil out of the boats yeah, the pacing in this film is excellent leading up to full monster yeah. reveal. Yeah, and so of course it's investigation time. The scientist and uh the scientist father and Ken have to go into the bay and and see what's going on. So Ken hangs out uh on the rocks by the shore while Dr. Yeno goes into the water to see what's up. And we get to see some underwater sequences. One of the things I loved, I I didn't know what to make of this. There's a piece of trash sunk to the bottom of Saruga Bay that looks like an artificial swan. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's just there. Uh, yeah. Meanwhile, Ken up on the rocks is like prying up mussels, and he discovers that they're empty, and the crabs are bleached and dead. So it's just this place has been ruined by pollution. Everything's dead. It it almost reminded me of the recent uh, episodes we did about marine mucilage. Yeah. But here I think we get our first vision of Hedera. In fact, well, it's a it's a combination scene because Hedera actually does appear in one form, but also Ken is having visions of Hedera that seem to go beyond what Hedera is actually doing in this scene. Did you understand it the same way? Um yeah, well there was a lot coming at me at this point. I think I was yeah. just like generally geeking out at at how uh, terrific this was visually. Uh but but yeah, like the 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 father, the, the the doctor is having his own encounter under underwater and then Ken is encountering all this stuff above uh the water. Um yeah, it's it's and is this when we start getting the the cartoons? No, that's not yet. Not yet. Uh this scene finishes with like Ken being confronted by Hedera and Hedera like flies over him and he reaches up with a knife and, and like cuts yes, part is, of it. Yes. This is the free Willy moment. It's like the, the moment in free Willy, except imagine that instead of it being an orca, it was a sludge monster. And instead of touching the, the creature, you were driving a knife up into its sludge belly. <laughs> That's literally what happens. And it's terrific. Ken does a really great sludge belly slicing. Mm-hmm. And uh, and meanwhile, uh, Dr. Yano down in the water is severely burned. And when, so we go back to the house and he's got bandages all over his face. He has been attacked. And we learn a number of things. We learn that Hedera, he's already got a name. Now he's named after a type of sludge called Hedero. I don't know what Hedero means. But yeah, soon after this, we we get our first cartoon sequence, which these cartoons are absolutely wonderful. This one was mm-hmm. labeled Happy Hedera. 
and it very much reminds me of the animation style of the blue meanies in the Yellow Submarine movie. Yeah. There's a real sense of weirdness and whimsy to them. Uh, and and it's, it's just fabulous. I, I wish there were actually more animated sequences in this film uh, because they, they just do a great job breaking up the pacing. Um, and, uh, and and just, you know, upping the visual pizzazz of the whole feature. Now, like the last episode, I, I don't think from here I'm going to do a, a complete, like, scene-by-scene scene breakdown of, of the whole mm-hmm. movie, but just maybe wanted to focus on some things that caught our attention as we as we went through because you know this is a kaiju movie you can probably guess basically the structure it takes the hetero monster becomes increasingly menacing attacks the city until eventually godzilla appears to fight it off and then it comes back even stronger and now it looks like godzilla and the people are in trouble but then godzilla and the people come up with ways of fighting back and you know it's pretty standard yeah, there's going to be some buildings screwed up. There's going to be some sort of large-scale technological approach to fighting the monster with mixed results. All that stuff is in play. You will not be surprised by anything that actually happens from a plot standpoint, for the most part. Uh, but uh, some of the specific choices they make are still amazing. One of the main ones, I would say, is in the first big hetero attack scene where he comes out of the water and he attacks the land. He comes out of the water to huff smokestacks. Mm-hmm. But the way they set that scene up is that uh, we see – I think Yukio is there at the nightclub scene, isn't he? Yes, he is. He's yeah. He seems to be having – I don't know. He, he It's a scene where he's drinking. Like he's just down some sort of cocktail or some sort of alcohol on the rocks. And then he kind of looks at the glass like he's he's having mixed thoughts about what he just drank. Uh, he, he has a love-hate relationship with this cocktail. And he's, he's uh-huh. dressed in this really cool outfit. He's got this wonderful, um, colorful um, shirt on and this weird tie that I absolutely love. And meanwhile – the nightclub itself is just amazing. You got more Joshua Light Show stuff going on uh, behind them. You've got this. Uh, you've got uh, Kiki Omari doing some sort of a performance, and she's wearing this weird naiad costume with like uh, nautical uh, details on it. It's it's very psychedelic. Uh, I, it's just a really cool nightclub sequence. You watch it, and you want to be there. Yeah, love, love, love the sequence. It's it's so strange and it's so good. And uh, and I think they're, in a way, reprising the song from the opening, or at least uh, playing on variations of it, mm-hmm. uh, because both of them have that phrase. They keep saying "give it back," which I think means like give give the natural resources back to the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's so strange because from there we go from the song in the nightclub to first of all. A hetero prank call to the police station? Did you understand this? Like, um, I, I don't. I don't think I quite got this. This was a section of the film where I started watching it with my son too, so uh, I might have been slightly distracted as we we talked about what was going on on screen. And then, so you see a police officer answer the phone and say like, "Hello, who is it?" And then he's like, uh, "That's ridiculous. Hetera is a sea monster." So <laughs> somebody's calling and saying they're hetera, maybe. Oh, or maybe they're just reporting. They're like, hey, Hedera's attacking the city. And they're like, no, oh, no, no, it can't be. Hedera lives be in it, the man. sea. Because one of the themes here is that Hedera is going through a transformation. He's going from um, an aquatic form to a quadrupedal form. Ultimately, uh-huh. he goes through a flying uh, phase and then into a bipedal form uh, for the final fight. Though he also backtracks to a flying form a little bit at will. 
I think you're right. That must be how to understand it. Cause my version didn't make any sense. I was like, what's with this prank call? Uh, but yeah, no, I think he's saying somebody reports Hedera being on land and he's like, no, no, that can't be because Hedera is in the water. Mm-hmm. But what does Hedera do once Hedera comes on land? Uh, just slips its mouth right over the top of a smokestack and starts huffing the gas. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and, and of course, in all of this, Hedera is also emitting like sulfuric acid clouds. Yes. And um, either at this point or very shortly afterwards, we start seeing scenes of it just like obliterating crowds, like turning people yeah. to skeletons in the street. Yes, yes. Uh, like uh, people literally just turn into piles of bones. Yeah. But we also watch Hedera like Hedera has these tumor looking things, these bumps all over its body. Uh, should we describe, can we describe Hedera? I don't even know how to say what Hedera looks like. Hedera looks like a big ball of garbage with, uh, with like trailing slime tentacles that has these vertically oriented red eyes. Yeah. And he's kind of glistening, kind of sparkling mm-hmm. in, it, it's really quite an, an ambitious and effective monster costume because if you see enough kaiju films, you realize there are only so many things you can really do with a with a human in a suit, uh, or and or the use of puppetry, and there there are limitations on in both areas. Uh, and I feel like they they did a great job with this costume in that it's clearly built around a bipedal human performer, uh, and yet it does have that feel of some sort of amorphous sludge monster. Yeah, so this horrible thing is attacking the city. What's going to happen? Is Godzilla going to come and save the day? Well, we had a hint earlier that he would because I think was it that Ken was writing an essay for school mm-hmm. uh, when when he said like I, – I think this is what it is. Ken is writing an essay for the second grade – for his second grade class and it says something like – you know, the the water is polluted with, with cadmium and mercury and all this. And then it ends with saying, I bet Godzilla would be mad if he saw this. Yes. And then eventually he has like a, a visual hallucination, uh, like a vision, a prophecy. And he's like, Godzilla's coming. Godzilla's coming to clear this up. That's right. And then what's that? It is Godzilla. Godzilla coming over the horizon. And Godzilla and, and Hedera throw down. They, they have a, a great fight. A great fight with very weird energy. Uh, unlike any other fight I can think of from a, from a Godzilla movie that I recall. Because it's a fight with n- basically no music and very little sound effects. The fight later in the movie has a lot more of the Godzilla squealing sound. Mm-hmm. This one, there are long stretches where it's very quiet, this kind of low anticipatory rumble as the two monsters just kind of regard one another and stand there swaying in the darkness. It's it's very unusual, very effective. Yeah, I also like how some of these fight, maybe all of the fight scenes, but some of the key fight scenes take place in like a great field. Like yeah. it, it feels like a like a battlefield um, in, in, instead of it being, in, I don't know, a lot, a lot of kaiju movies, they end up taking place on a model city or around a model city. And I don't know, this one this just had a different feel to it. Yeah. Two monsters there, like, like engines idling almost. Yeah. Uh, and I should say all this is going on. The fight is is sizing up between them while they're while Yukio is still in the nightclub, and he's starting to have hallucinations of all the dancers in the club wearing fish masks, which was just <laughs> so good. It, it's one of multiple parts of this movie that reminded me of The Wicker Man. 
Yeah. Uh, so they're, they're fish masks here, but then later on in the movie, all the young people, they decide they're like, well, Hetera's here and you know, the earth is so polluted. We're basically near the end of human civilization anyway. So let's just go have a big wicker man party on Mount Fuji, which is exactly what they do. They go up and the, they, they do a summer isle kind of thing. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a, it's kind of a somber affair. They're kind of, I guess, mourning, but also ultimately bringing the fight to Hetera. Uh, the, the military has, has, mostly failed uh and the, the, it's up to the youth to to raise their voices in song and then ultimately like throwing uh torches at hetera as he advances it's mm-hmm. it's pretty stirring uh because it you know it's 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 about the youth culture and then there's this other uh, and, and their role in perhaps fighting these important battles uh, of the future, you know, certainly in, environmentally. Uh, but it, but also you have these sequences in this whole sequence. You see these kind of ghostly looking old people watching on from the shadows with kind of somber looks on their faces. Oh, yeah. That was one of the strangest things to me. I didn't know what to make of that. I, I thought maybe I had missed a scene explaining what was going on there or something. But while there is this Mount Fuji young people wicker man party and they're out playing guitars and dancing dancing in the field there are these like ghastly people of the wheat who are just standing behind these tall grassy stalks with these gray impassive faces and just watching yeah i i it reminded me a lot uh, this movie reminded me a lot in general of some of the works of miyazaki um mm. be, because he, he has a lot of environmental themes in his work but also mm. there are he does deal with these uh, kind of generational um, conflicts as well, mm-hmm. uh, and I feel like, and I could be could be wrong on this, but I feel like that's the territory that that uh, this director was getting into with Godzilla versus Hedera. At least just a flash of it. There's this this idea of generational conflict uh, concerning uh, the confrontation of, in this case, environmental issues. So maybe it's like the gray people of the weed are kind of like. Uh, the adults in Spirited Away who can't see the magic and are just sitting at the food stall stuffing their faces until they turn into pigs. Yeah, yeah, perhaps. But of course, eventually, it's it's all about Godzilla and Hedera battling each other. And boy, do they battle. They battle. They battle a lot. They battle hard. Yep, They're... Yep. Godzilla's on the ropes. There are comebacks. And then uh, and, and, oh, and there's a sequence where... where uh, there's also flying. Like, Hedera goes into a flying form drops Godzilla onto the side of a mountain and then Godzilla falls into a hole and then the, and then Hedera is going to like sludge flood the hole. Oh. It, it, it gets it gets really intense there. Yeah, horrible. So the, it's a part where you think Godzilla is maybe going to die. Like Hedera throws him into an open grave of toxic sewage. Yeah. Oh, and then, but the flying, Hedera is not the only one to fly. Godzilla flies in this and I don't think I'd seen yes! this before. I started shouting when I saw it. Godzilla like, balls up basically like tuck i was gonna say he tucks his tail that makes it sound like he's ashamed he's not he like balls up into an almost kind of fetal position and then Mm kind of hurt like blows out the radiation breath like a jetpack exhaust trail and flies yeah i i thought i'd seen all godzilla's tricks before but this is my first time seeing this i'm curious if this ever came up again in another godzilla film or if they they decided not to i mean i thought it would look it, it fit perfectly in this film I'm not sure if other Godzilla directors would have liked it. Yeah, I mean, if Godzilla can fly, that kind of changes the whole equation. I'm sure mm-hmm. there have been other movies where he flies. I, I have a vague tingling recollection that that happens in something else, but it's certainly not all of them. Okay. 
Now, ultimately, there it's one of those sequences where it, it involves the human characters trying to set some kind of technological trap for the monster. They're trying to uh, electrocute Hetera because the scientist character figures out that electricity dries out the sludge, and this is the only way it can be defeated. And if they're not able to defeat it with these big electrodes, uh, then it will get too big for even Godzilla to handle, and then it will just take over the world. Right. Also oxygen. So they, they bomb it with oxygen from helicopters a little bit. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember that. But like we were saying, ultimately, the, the military is not very good at upholding their part of the deal. And Godzilla kind of has to do everything for them. And Godzilla like sighs and shrugs his shoulders like really, guys. Uh, but but eventually Godzilla pairs his radio radiation breath with the giant electrodes. And of course, you know who wins in the end, but you know, yes, it's not hard to guess, but uh, there's a lot of great stuff along the way. One of my favorite parts was when Godzilla, it all, it almost seems like the good guys think they have defeated the monster like twice already, but it keeps coming back. And so Godzilla Mm -hmm. having defeated it another time starts sort of reaching into the sludge corpse body and just like ripping out guts and throwing them all over the place. Like, you know, you get some guts and you get some guts and yeah. all the bits of guts all dry out in the electric field. And and I thought that part was great. Yeah. Yeah. Just breath blast the whole field afterwards and then it's done. So I don't know if you noticed the same thing I did. It's possible I'm mistaken about this, but did the movie show a very brief flash of that uh, that famous woodblock, the uh, the great wave off Kanagawa for a second at the end? It did. And then I think it had a it added the text like, will it happen again? Yeah. So I wondered, did you know what to make of that? Like, why the Great Wave in particular? I believe this is a this is a piece of art we've discussed on the show before. I think we talked about it on a Stuff to Blow Your Mind episode about uh, rogue waves. Yeah, uh, because uh, but it's I, believed to depict a rogue wave. Yeah, right, right. Um, and uh, I was I was looking up for like a nice concise description of what this what this picture is and what it perhaps means. And I found one uh, at the Yale University Art Gallery. Um, and uh, this, is, this is what the, they have written there. Quote, at first glance, snow-capped Mount Fuji looks calm in the background of this print, far from the boats and towering waves. But the mountain is slightly obscured by a boat whose sharp sickle-like tip threatens to lop off Mount Fuji's peak. And recent scholars suggest that this print has political implications. Mount Fuji, a symbol of Japan, is menaced by boats and overpowering waves, both of which may imply a fear of foreign powers encroaching on Japanese shores. Indeed, in 1853, roughly 20 years after this print was made, the American Commodore Matthew Perry led a United States Navy fleet into the Tokyo Harbor and forcibly opened Japan to trade. So I think we might interpret this as as, as meaning like pollution is the next great wave or it is the current mm. great wave and it is threatening Japan. And, and, you know, can we stop it? Can we rise up against it? Like, what is, our, what, is, what is our resolve against this threat? And Godzilla himself embodies that resolve. Yeah, I believe so. By the way, there are multiple versions. You know, this is a very popular piece of art. So there have been various uh, reinterpretations and parodies of it over time. You, if you just do a quick Google image search for the Great Wave off Kanagawa Godzilla, you will find depictions of Godzilla battling the wave, literally. Um, depictions of Godzilla as the wave. Uh, it's pretty fun. <laughs> That's good. All right. Well, should we wrap it up there? 
Yeah, let's go ahead and uh, close the book on this one. Now, you, if you're wondering, though, where can I watch Godzilla vs. Hedera? Uh, if, you, if you subscribe to HBO Max, you can find it in the TCM collection there, uh, which is where we watched it in, in really just glorious quality. But mm, you can also pick it yeah. up in various other formats, including Blu-ray. And if you want to go for something special, uh, pick, up, pick it up as part of their Criterion Collection box set, Godzilla, the Showa-era films, 1954 through 1975. So yes, I think this marks the first Weird House Cinema uh, film that is also in the Criterion Collection. Oh, I'm not so sure about that. Isn't there yeah. a Criterion of Split Second? <laughs> what, what about robot jocks I, not, not I, yet i refuse yet. to believe i that, think uh, that i i could be right i think this is their first criterion collect because i don't think mad love is in the criterion collection oh really and transfers to return of jack death no no not yet not, not yet all right well it, i gotta say honestly this is one of the most enjoyable godzilla movies i've ever seen it's uh, it's kind of notorious actually if, if you look at you know lists of people ranking the best godzilla films it does not usually make the top tier but i disagree i would put it right up there with the best yeah yeah it, it's pleasant to watch so if, if you if, if you're looking for a godzilla film uh give this one your consideration all right, so we're wrapping it up here. Uh, as always, you can catch Weird House Cinema every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Uh, you can find that feed wherever you get your podcasts. But if you want to get to it quickly, you can go to stufftoblowyourmind.com, and that will shoot you over to the iHeart listing for our page. And hey, there's a store tab there. And if you click on the store tab, you'll find uh, some merchandise for Stuff to Blow Your Mind, but also some merchandise for Weird House Cinema, including a shirt. You can finally get Weird House Cinema's logo or a version of its logo on t-shirts and stickers and iPhone covers and, and I don't know what else. There's just all sorts of stuff. So that's there if you want it. It's just, you know, just for fun. Uh, but the best thing you can do to support our show is just simply to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you have the power to do so. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.